So, um, give me a great pleasure to welcome Gary and Julie here today as our guests. Um, I'm sort of, I guess, celebrating the 20th anniversary of our, um, of our meeting. And so I thought I'd just give a, a little talk today trying to connect the work that me and Gary do. And um, so I, I um, first met Gary uh, when uh, me, and, me and Annie journeyed to South Australia in 1995. And um, I didn't have a job at the time and I just finished my social work degree. And we, um, <clears throat> so I applied for this job at uh, this place in South Australia near Adelaide called Salisbury West Community Health Centre. Uh, it was a 12-month contract um, to help uh, document uh, some very important work that was being done there by a man called Gary Wright. And so Gary had uh, developed these uh, stopping violence groups for men at the time. And uh, his work was very innovative and creative. And uh, it became this manual which I helped to compile. And... Um, And so uh, Gary was, I guess, my first mentor in, in, in social work, and, um, and I learned a lot from him. And uh, at the time, he was uh, working with a, a particular style of therapy called narrative therapy. And um, I guess one of the things about narrative therapy, which still stays with me, is, is the way which had a very respectful way of relating to people. And... Um, Rather than trying to impose ideas or change onto people, it was about trying to facilitate uh, the guys who came into the group their own kind of um, trying to facilitate their own inner guide or their own inner compassion and their own inner skills and knowledge as to how to stop violence from occurring in their lives. And it was quite yeah, it was quite eye-opening for me. And I went on to study <coughs> narrative therapy for a couple of years in Adelaide, and that was the beginning of my my social work career and um, so I thought it might be uh, I'll try and sort of say something about what um, what Buddhism may have to say about um, about violence um, in this talk today but first of all um, just to review um, the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about um, how we develop a, the, the no-self or the compassionate self in, in terms of how we rel relate to ourselves and to others. And, uh, and we were talking about, uh, last, uh, last couple of weeks, about judgments and about how judgments uh, can separate us from others. And, uh, and how sometimes if we observe very precisely and we can actually catch the internal cause and effect of judgments and emotional reactions within ourselves. Um, an example of that was what I gave it, the, the, the story that Joko told, uh, I, I, I told to the Sawtell group last week which was about the empty rowboat idea where you know there's a person in a rowboat and it's very early in the morning and it's a very misty on the lake and there are persons enjoying themselves in the rowboat and then all of a sudden this other rowboat comes crashing through the mist and it's just about to you know crash into the rowboat and the person in the rowboat 
has an emotional reaction and starts yelling at the person in the other rowboat, only to realize a couple of seconds later that there actually is nobody in that rowboat. And uh, so that sort of metaphor of the empty rowboat being a, a kind of way of understanding how we, at the same time as we're constructing ourselves, we're constructing the other, and when we have a judgmental reaction to the other, the, we, can, we can take ownership of that and see clearly how the, how the emotional reaction affects us and shuts us off, acts as a barrier to opening our heart of compassion. And, um, and so we, we sort of played around a bit with what a definition of compassion. So maybe three aspects to compassion. One is a mindfulness acceptance aspect to it, where we need to be mindful of what's occurring in the moment and be able to be with that, whatever's occurring. And secondly, a sense of empathy arising. Uh, so for example, we, uh, just if we can connect with someone else's sadness, that can be uh, a lovely way then of connecting to our compassion in the sense of our desire that the suffering be alleviated or prevented in some way. So how compassion is always just a little bit more than empathy. So it includes that, mo that movement of, of loving kindness, both to the other person and also to ourselves. If we're, if we're struggling with someone who may be suffering, uh, and it's a, uh, that is a, when we're being with that person and being with someone else who is suffering, the importance of having that circular flow of compassion from moving from the other to the self. So we're able to be with suffering in the world as best we can. And so I also so encourage you all to perhaps um, make some observations of, because uh, I, I gave a few little stories about judgment in my little everyday life, not big things, but, and um, and just wondering if you wanted to share anything about um, uh, being able to, did anybody capture, capture a judgment at any point over the last couple of weeks? Anybody want to share a story at all? Must have had at least one judgment. I'm just not telling you. So, I could. You could go go for it. My youngest daughter seems to be having a court case against her partner who broke her nose several weeks ago. So she went and spent some time with her mother in, in Adelaide and had a lovely time. Got a bit healthier and she's got a little boy, 18 month old boy, to this man. And um, I supported her and helped her get over there. And she was very appreciative of that. And then I knew she had to come back to this court case, but we, I couldn't help her with a place to stay because my partner's daughter is staying with us. And, uh, and so she came back without a plan and then hadn't spoken to me for the week that she's been back. And, um, and I think that's a bit ominous that she's gone back to this fella. 
in the court case coming up and I just have to um, feel like I have to uh, judge her for um, going back the evidence is there on what she posts on Facebook she's very um, undisciplined in what she focuses on, on posts on Facebook and, uh, and I realise I've got no control over her whatsoever, even though I think I know what's best for her. And, uh, and so I just have to keep releasing it and releasing it, releasing myself from the judgments I'm making, thinking I know what's best for her, even though the, the pathway seems to be choosing more suffering for the future for herself and her son. Mm. And so that's one of my practices at the moment is to keep releasing those judgments and realise that she has to choose, she has to be allowed to choose her own way but maybe this is the way she wakes up, I don't know. Mm. So I just have mm. to keep releasing this. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that's a, a common situation many of us find ourselves in, mm. whether it's our children, um, our partners, or parents <laughs> we, might, we might see them um, um, doing something or that we obviously see would uh, lead to maybe further suffering but um, that's their business and not ours and we're responsible for our um, our happiness but we can't necessarily lead someone else to happiness they have to find that path themselves but uh, I guess did you did you note that with the judgment and, and letting go of the judgment, I guess that that keeps the the heart open for connection, mm. which Absolutely. is the most important thing. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, in my work with uh, Gary and, and I guess well, for lots of workers who who work in domestic violence, you know there are. We talk about all the different forms of, of violence towards others, whether it's physical violence and verbal violence, um, sexual violence, um, various forms of um, controlling others or imprisoning others. Um, there's probably lots of other examples of violence. So, um, and. Um, so it's violence that occurs towards others, but, um, but also how the violence can also be um, directed towards the self. And how really when we're violent toward another, we're actually either being violent towards ourselves at the same time. Um, from, a, from a Buddhist perspective, I mean, in our workers, domestic violence workers, um, you know, there'd be lots, probably there's lots of very important different ways of understanding violence. I'm not saying I have the, the true and the one answer, but like um, whether you look at forms of patriarchy or hierarchy, um, whether you look at, um, um, you know, um, insecure attachment, there's lots of different models we can use for understanding violence. So whether it's something that's innate in human beings, um, but from a Buddhist perspective, um, um, the, the root cause of suffering and violence in the world always comes down to this duality that we experience. And, uh, and uh, 
we don't see that the uh, the other person uh, is in fact um, <coughs> no different to us. Uh, we get caught in the illusion of us and them all the time, and we see that being played out on the world stage for millennia. And um, so, from a Buddhist, <coughs> well, from my ordinary mind, everyday sort of Buddhist practice. Um, um, I always have to bring my attention to, to my life and how I conduct myself in my life and, uh, and, to, and to what degree I can bring some sense of, of peace and non-violence in, into my life. And, um, and in, uh, in Japanese Zen there's um, what I call the four, the four seals, um, uh, a seal being like a stamp. Um, the four seals of Dharma teaching, like a, you'll see on calligraphy or paintings, a little little stamp that that's like a signature, like an artistic signature that verifies the authenticity of a, a drawing or a painting or a calligraphy. And uh, so in Japanese Zen, that they call these four seals are the uh, basically the summary of Dharma. And, uh, and, uh, and that uh, you can authenticate a, a Buddhist teaching if these four seals are, are present. And so it's kind of like then, well, how can we apply this, these, four, these four principles to understanding of violence? And the four principles are, the, uh, the first one is that um, there is suffering. Um, um, the, um, everything contains suffering. And... And then the second seal is everything is impermanent and um, autumn is always a really nice time for reminding ourselves of impermanence as we see the leaves falling off the trees. <coughs> and the third seal is the doctrine of no self or no independently existing self. And the fourth seal is uh, nirvana. And um, so the degree to which we suffer uh, is how much we choose to be caught in the world of what in Buddhism is often called samsara, which is when we are, um, we're, we're, we are attached to a sense of uh, wanting things to be permanent and also the illusion of having a separate self. And that the, that the practice, in a way, is that gradual erosion of that fundamental illusion through the practice of meditation and, and bringing that awareness into everyday life where we start to realize the reality of impermanence and the reality of no self or not, nothing independently existing. Um, and in some ways these four seals are kind of like the way of, in Buddhism of talking about absolute reality. You know, there's a, um, we can maybe there's two kinds of reality, there's a kind of accidental reality where we might happen just to be, you know, um, the gender that we are, the job that we do, the name that we have, um, the fact that we're just sitting here today in, in Belgium, these are all accidental realities. But the fact that we all die is, is, prof is profoundly absolute. And uh, the fact that nothing is permanent is profoundly absolute. Uh, and the fact that uh, there is absolutely no 
being or no phenomena in the universe that has a separate, independently existing self that never changes is absolutely real. real. And in some ways, the journey from samsara to nirvana, nirvana is simply, in the, in the teachings I relate to, simply aligning ourselves with the fundamental reality that things always change and that there is no separate self. And it's a fairly easy doctrine to understand intellectually, but it's much more difficult to understand on a deep experiential level. And that's where the, the meditation practice or the zazen practice, where we're fundamentally continuing to experience that constant change and, and, and at a very, very deep, even cellular level, um, where we start to understand that truth in, our, in ourselves, in our bodies. And um, so that when the, uh, the, the shocks of life hit us, we're able to be with them in a way which, is a lot, which induces a lot less suffering and harm. So if you're thinking of, say, applying these principles to um, uh, violence, I thought of two ideas. Um, one was um, how um, in a domestic violence situation, um, one strategy is always to try and impose some kind of control on the external environment. So if, uh, if we're afraid that our, if our partner's going to leave us or uh, we try and, um, try and somehow control that and try and make that not happen. And, and if that means in our ignorance we commit acts of violence in doing that, we commit acts of violence in doing that because we're trying to, trying to hang on to something which is changing and we don't want it to change and we just don't have the, the, uh, the, the, the presence to, to be able to accept the reality of that fact. Um, um, so it's that, that, that's that form of attaching to how um, we think reality should be. You know, and there's just lots of examples of how we suffer so much from our attachment to how we think reality should be. And in fact, reality is not like that. It's moved on. And so a lot of violence gets perpetuated in, in trying to cling on to our beliefs of how it should be. So that's, that's one example of how violence takes place from a Buddhist perspective. The other example is from the, um, the reality of what we're actually experiencing and how we are avoiding what we're experiencing. We're avoiding the emotional pain, maybe the emotional pain of rejection. And so it's kind of like a flight from internal reality. And sometimes rage, anger, violence is a flight away from the actually experiencing the pain of what's real. And um, it's often easier. <coughs> Uh, uh, it's uh, a flight, that flight away again from the reality of the pain, and um, um, which leads to which leads to violence. Um, so um, we don't necessarily have to apply those those kind of principles to um, domestic violence, but we can. We can apply them as best we can to see in our own lives how at times we try and control something that we can't control. <laughs> uh, that we try and cling on to the way things should be. 
or how we how we flight or how we take flight away from the reality of what we're experiencing within ourselves. Might not be rage and violence, but there may be other ways we use to take flight from the reality of that. That's why Zazen is such a great practice because to just sit, we're just cutting everything down to a bare minimum and just sitting with whatever is and and, um, it, it, and, and, and sometimes it's just, you know, if, if, we, if we practice this on a regular basis, there are going to be times in our lives when we are facing a crisis and the, the things going on that we're finding difficult, and then we can just come and sit with that. And, um, and somehow we, can, we, we find our way back to what is, okay, everything is changing, everything is impermanent. Um, What's the one thing that we can always count on? And the one thing we can always count on is just this. This moment is always going to be just this moment. Can't be anything else. And if we can be with this moment, simply experiencing the breath and body sensations, what it means to be alive as a human being. And if emotional pain comes up, the emotional pain comes up, we can stay with that. So we're gradually building a bigger and bigger container as we practice this Zazen to enable us to experience these what are often difficult emotions which we often maybe want to run away from, to actually experience them in our bodies which leads to the opening of our heart uh, in the sense that we start to experience that sense of what in Buddhism, if we place impermanence and no self together, no separate existing self, in Buddhism those two are often referred to as emptiness. But not emptiness in the way we would, emptiness in the sense of boundlessness, emptiness in the sense of um, a, a, a vast expansiveness and spaciousness and uh, a sense in which we deeply connect with the reality of being one with the universe. And whether you want to call that reality or whether you want to call that God, it doesn't really matter. But if we can just be at one with the universe in that moment, then nothing can hurt us. And that's the practice of compassion, non-separate, non-separation, non-separation from this moment. Okay, we'll leave it there for today.